Well, we are in a time of increasingly geopolitical instability, wouldn't you say? I mean, just think of the recent events in Afghanistan. John just prayed for them. I appreciate that. If you asked anyone, I'd wager to say, on August the 1st, just a little over one month ago, if the Taliban would control Afghanistan as of August 15th, I'd have to say the answer would have been a resounding no. Yet that's just what happened. As Americans, this has many of us on both the right and the left unsettled, and for good reason. Our hasty exit left many Afghan allies stranded. What does that do for us the next time we need help as a country? Our hasty exit and swift fall has emboldened countries that we don't want to be emboldened. China and Russia are both aglow over this right now. And you know, as I think about it, just thinking through history, ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, the world has experienced, at least comparatively speaking, thinking about the vast swath of human history, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the world has experienced significant overall stability. And American diplomatic military influence has been a big part of that. But I think the bothersome question that's starting to come up is, might that be changing? Is the global scene shifting? Are the next 20 years going to be more chaotic than the last 20 years? And even just asking that question, so we (laughs) we don't like that question, right? No, of course we don't like that question. The thought of significant geopolitical upheaval can be unnerving. We want stability. We want security. We want to know everything is going to be fine, well. And this brings us to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Brothers and sisters, through these books, God shows us That all of those things you instinctively long for, all of those things are actually yours right now. And not by virtue of being associated with any particular nation or any particular world power, but by virtue of your citizenship in the coming kingdom of Christ. So these books are going to wonderfully lift our eyes above the horizon of our world right now, which is so good and healthy for us as Christians to be reminded that the kingdoms of this world are passing and it's going to direct our gaze on the eternal city, the new Jerusalem that is coming and will never fade. At the same time, God will use these books by his grace to wonderfully direct our eyes to the here and now. Because the reality is that God uses us right now to help build this eternal city. So today we start a new series in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're covering both because they both tell one unified story. They actually go together. And the story they tell is this. Here's a summary in just a couple of sentences. Ezra and Nehemiah are about the rebuilding of the city of God. That's what they're about. 
But ultimately, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, through whom God is building the heavenly Jerusalem, his church. So let's just jump in, okay? Today I'm going to overview the two books. Next week we'll jump into Ezra specifically. And I'd encourage you to have your outlines open today. This is going to help you follow along. We're going to We're just going to cover a broad swath of Scripture. To understand these books, you've got to first understand some context. So let's just first talk about some immediate context. Ezra and Nehemiah are telling the story of Israel after her exile in Babylon. Now, remember, Israel was kicked out of the land of Canaan because of her sin. She was carted off to Babylon where she spent 70 years in captivity. And these books pick up at the very end of that period of time, and they tell us how Israel went back into Jerusalem to rebuild. To rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, and to restore Jerusalem to the place where God dwells with his people. Now let me just go over with you a couple of important dates. You can see these on the back of your outline. You're going to look at that. Don't freak out. not going to go over all of it. There will be a test next week. In 722, the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. What's the northern kingdom? Well, good question. That's the northern ten tribes whose capital city was Samaria. And in the Old Testament, the northern kingdom is often just called Israel. And then the southern two tribes are often just called Judah. So 722, northern kingdom goes into exile. A bunch of foreigners resettle the land. That's 722. 605. Nebuchadnezzar establishes himself as a powerhouse in the region. He probably takes Daniel and his friends into captivity in Babylon at that point in time. In 597, Babylon lays siege to Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar carries off all the officers and the fighting men. That's what the text says. And he also carries off King Jehoiakim. A total of 10,000 people are carted off, and Zedekiah is made the new king over Judah. He's a puppet king, that's for sure. He's a puppet king under Nebuchadnezzar, but he is a king nonetheless. And then we fast forward to 586. Nebuchadnezzar sacks Jerusalem, burns down the temple, takes the southern kingdom into captivity and exile. Now, you'll, you'll see below there that there's a new ruler in Persia from 559 to 530, and that's significant because in 539, this Cyrus captures Babylon and overthrows the Babylonian king. So Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon, and he carted off Jerusalem, but then eventually Cyrus, you know, opens up a can and whoops uh, Babylon, and now Cyrus is going to do some things, and here's what he's going to do. This brings us to Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. And so here's what's going to happen. He's going to allow Israel to go back to Jerusalem, whoever wants to go, and rebuild the temple of the Lord. Now that's the immediate context. But to get a sense of the significance of all this... You really need to see where this fits into the, into the storyline of the whole Bible. We'd call this the, the canonical context. Big word just means where is this in the flow of the whole 
canon. So I'm going to give you a short overview of everything in the Old Testament up to Ezra and Nehemiah. Going to have you out before six. God created the world and everything in it in six days, and he rested on the seventh. That's Genesis. Now, mankind, Adam and Eve, was the crown jewel of his creation. I know most of you know that. He, he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and Scripture tells us this garden was incredible. It was beautiful. It was lush. Everything they need is there, and what's most wonderful about it is that God Himself is there. This is the place where God dwells with His people. He is with them, and they are with Him. He is their God. It's very, very precious. But tragically, they rebel against His Lordship. You know this too. He had given them his covenant in the form of a command. Uh, you shall not eat of any, you, you can eat of, of any tree in the fruit of the garden, save one. You got to keep yourselves from one. And Adam and Eve would not submit to that. When push came to shove, when tempted by the serpent, Adam and Eve showed themselves to be not covenant keepers, but covenant breakers, not faithful to the Lord, faithless to the Lord. And so as a result, they're kicked out of the garden. So they're separated from God. God is holy. We learn this from Genesis. God is holy. He cannot abide sin. And so they're cast out of his presence. This beautiful picture of God dwelling with his people. It's been shattered. It's like a glass that's fallen off the table onto the floor and just breaks. And yet right after this tragedy, God makes a promise. In Genesis 3.15, he promises that one day a far-off descendant of Eve is going to come and restore everything that's been lost here. So sin and death have entered the world through the serpent's temptation, but one day there's going to be a descendant of Eve who's going to triumph over that serpent, meaning that the effects of sin are not going to have the last word. This is good news. God is one day going to again dwell with his people. One day they too will be, uh, they will be together again in his special place. They will be his people. He will be their God. God's going to pick up the pieces and make all of this right. Reparo. That was a Harry Potter joke. You don't have to laugh. Now, the rest of Genesis traces the preservation and incremental fulfillment of these promises. Uh, we, we see as we walk through Genesis, uh, we see that these promises are going to come through this line, not this line. So, so through Seth and not Cain and, and through Noah and through Shem, not through Ham, not through Japheth. You're like, who are those people? It's okay. You don't really need to know. I'm just going to keep going. Now, fast forward to Genesis 12. It becomes really clear that God's going to fulfill these promises through Abraham. God makes three promises to Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your offspring into a great nation. And I'm going to give you a place, a special place, the land of Canaan. Now, by the time we get to the end of Genesis, these promises are incrementally coming to fulfillment. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Those sons began to multiply. We got the beginnings of a nation here. But as we turn to Exodus, we see this budding nation in captivity. At the end of Genesis, Jacob and his offspring fled to Egypt to escape a famine. 
They found refuge in Egypt under Joseph, stayed there, multiplied. But eventually they became so great that Pharaoh was threatened by them and enslaved them. And so what God does is he saves them. You know the story. He delivers them. And why does he deliver them? He delivers them so that he can bring them to himself in Canaan. He says to Moses in chapter 6 of Exodus, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Just pause right there. Does that remind you of the language and the picture that was there in Genesis 1? God's people dwelling with God in His special place. It's it's moving back in that direction. It should remind you of that. Because actually the land of Canaan looks back to the land of Eden. It looks back to the garden. Canaan is restoration, lowercase r, of what was lost through sin. But of course, God's people must be holy to dwell with God in his holy place. And so God entered into covenant with Israel. That's Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Uh, Those commandments are fleshed out uh, throughout Exodus. And then the latter half of Exodus is about the tabernacle. Exodus and Leviticus, both about the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is special. Because God promises to dwell in the tabernacle above the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. He promises to specially dwell with his people there. But it's also special because, you see, this is where God makes provision to deal with his people's sin through sacrifice. So when they sin, there is forgiveness available through sacrifice. That's Exodus, deliverance, Leviticus, Provision for sin. Numbers, disaster. Numbers is the first generation that comes out of Egypt acting like Adam, refusing to trust and obey God. And so they die in the wilderness while God raises up a second generation. And then Deuteronomy is the renewal of the Mosaic covenant with that generation. Are you with me? All right. Now, when we come to the end of Deuteronomy, it's honestly very exciting. Israel is at long last poised to take the land of promise. Joshua recounts Israel taking it. And so you've got fulfillment. God's people are in God's place and God is going to dwell with them. Ish. And I say ish because judges recount that after Joshua died... Israel was faithful for a generation, but then they turned unfaithful. And so Judges tells this one story over and over again. People are like, when are you going to preach Judges? I don't know. When are you ready to hear the same story over and over again? It's like Groundhog Day. Israel's unfaithful. Judgment falls. God raises up a deliverer. Israel's faithful for a time, but then the cycle repeats. It's parenting. Now... We move into the time of the kings. Israel wants a king. God gives them a king. First Saul, he was unfaithful to the Lord. Then David, and everyone knows, everyone knows who's familiar with the Bible, that David was a good king. A man after God's own heart, the text says. 
David ruled Israel with justice, with righteousness. Israel's kingdom grew in every way, in significance, in security, in prosperity. It was unbelievable. And then in Solomon, it got even better and it reached epic proportions. No king, no kingdom on the face of the earth at that time in history was more significant than Solomon and Israel. And the crown jewel of his rule was the construction of the permanent tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem. Magnificent. God's people are dwelling in God's place, in God's presence. He is with them. They are his people. He is their God. That's what we have here. And yet it's temporary. Even in Solomon's own life, he turns from the Lord. His son splits the kingdom into two. That's where you get the northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes. And the bottom line is that from 1 Samuel to 2 Chronicles, you have a picture played out of disobedience and high-handed rebellion leading to God, giving his people to godless nations in judgment. The northern ten tribes are overrun and carted off to captivity in what year? This would be incredible if you got it. 722. Somebody got it. I'm sure you did. The southern two in 586. Friends, the penalty of sin is death. And death is what you have here. The nation is toast. And this is where we come to Ezra. This is where we come to Ezra. Israel is hopeless, helpless, like Israel of old, in captivity in a foreign land. And yet Ezra gives us hope. I've split this up very simply at a high level so that you can just see what's going on. You might want to look at your, your bulletin outline. Ezra 1 and 2 are a return to the land. So after 70 years of captivity, God puts it into the heart of a pagan king, Cyrus, to send Israel back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Open your Bibles, if you don't mind, and just turn to Ezra and look at chapter 1, verse 2. Ezra is just one bit before the Psalms and Proverbs. So if you get to the Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then all those little guys that you can't remember, you've gone too far. So open up to Ezra just before Psalms and Proverbs and look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. This is unbelievable. You know what this is? It's a second exodus. From slavery to freedom. God working through the heart of a pagan king to accomplish his will. So chapter 1 is the proclamation to go back and the provision for the temple out of the king's treasuries. Chapter 2 is a list of everybody who returned. Chapters 3 through 6 narrate the rebuilding of the temple. So first, you got the altar. It's rebuilt. That's 3, 1 through 7. The temple itself begins to be rebuilt in 3, 8 through 13. 
Chapter 4 opens with opposition. God's people have enemies. They don't want the temple to be rebuilt. And so they frustrate their plans. For 15 years they frustrate their plans. Uh, Temple rebuilding began in 536. It didn't pick up until 520. 5.1 tells us how the prophets in those days, Haggai and Zechariah, they encouraged the people. But then there's yet even more opposition. In 5.3, an enemy sends a letter to the current king named Darius, trying to get him to stop the building campaign. But to their dismay, instead of stopping it, he totally affirms it. And he says, don't get in the way. Let them build. In fact, give them everything they need to complete it. That's pretty awesome. Look at 6.14. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. I'm in Zechariah 6. Sorry, I'm in Ezra 6.14. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished... On the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Unbelievable. Israel has returned to the land, rebuilt the temple, and now it's time to restore the law. There's actually a big break time-wise between Ezra 6, which takes place in 516, and Ezra 7, which takes place in 458, big time break. We don't know much about the intervening period, but what we do know is that according to chapter 7, King Artaxerxes sends Ezra from Babylon to Jerusalem with treasures and provision for the temple and with the express purpose of establishing the law of the Lord in Jerusalem. Look at 725. And you, Ezra... According to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Crazy. This is crazy, really. A pagan king making a decree for the law of God to be established and upheld in Jerusalem. So not only has Israel returned to the land, rebuilt the temple, the law has been restored. Those are all incredible things. But in 9 and 10, Ezra actually ends on a bit of a negative note. We see the ruin of sin. In Israel 9, Israel is confronted with their age-old problem, impurity. They've intermarried with the nations that don't follow and serve God. What's the problem with that? Well, it leads God's people away from God. That's a problem. <laughs> it's, it's faithlessness to His covenant that He made with them at Sinai. It's faithlessness like this that resulted in their captivity to Babylon in the first place. And now, this has just happened and now they're going after it again. <laughs> this is not good. Now, Praise God, the people confess and repent in ten. But this is just a little foretaste that this restoration that we see in Ezra, this isn't going to last. So, what's Ezra about? Just kind of come back up for air. Return to the land, second exodus. Rebuild the temple. Restore the law. Ruin of sin. 
That's what Ezra is about. And Nehemiah is actually much the same, but from just a slightly different angle. The focus in Ezra is rebuilding Jerusalem's temple. The focus in Nehemiah is rebuilding Jerusalem's walls. And so just like in Ezra, there's a return to the land. So you've got the same thing in Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1 and 2 recounts Nehemiah's lament that Israel's walls are broken down. His subsequent prayer to God and his plea to the king to send him there. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. 2.5 And the king does. He sends them, and so Nehemiah goes, and he inspects the walls one night, and then he stirs up the people to work. Three through seven are actually a thrilling recounting of work despite fierce opposition. Opposition from the outside. Nehemiah actually led the people of Israel to have tools for rebuilding in one hand and tools for fighting in the other hand. <laughs> and there, so there's not only opposition from outside, there's opposition from inside. And Nehemiah has to deal with the covenant community's gross injustices towards one another. This is a threat to the community as well. But eventually the wall is completed. 6.15 says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived, rightly, that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. So again, there's a return to the land, there's rebuilding the city, and next there's the restoration of the people of God. This is just a beautiful section of scripture. So in seven, we've got a list of all the exiles that returned. In eight through 10, the law is read. It's explained. It's understood. And the people of God renew the covenant. They hear the word of God. They respond to the word of God. They pledge to follow the word of God. Beautiful. And then in 11 and 12, it shows us how the city is indwelt. It's filled up and the walls are dedicated. Just throw your eyes on 1227. Throw your eyes on 1227. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them to rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This is incredible. Jerusalem has been rebuilt. Not only the temple, Ezra, but also the city's walls, Nehemiah. And I hope that you see in the storyline of Scripture what this is. It's God's people dwelling with God in God's special place. But just like Ezra, 
Nehemiah 2 ends on a bit of a negative note. We've got a Debbie Downer that keeps coming in our midst, friends. We see the ruin of sin again. Nehemiah has to deal with neglect of the offerings in 13.10, Sabbath breaking in 13.15, which is not a light matter, and intermarriage again, which is a huge deal in 13.23. So what do we have? We have the sense that this cannot be all there is. As incredible as this is, there has to be something more because we already see seeds of the same pattern of rebellion we have seen from the beginning of Genesis, right? This restoration is not enough. Although the temple's rebuilt, the city is back in order. Israel's heart is still wayward. Now, if we stop there, you would understand Ezra and Nehemiah, but not truly. You'd understand that it's about the rebuilding of the city of God. But you see, that's not really what Ezra and Nehemiah are ultimately about. To see what these books are ultimately about, we have to interpret them according to Jesus' words in Luke 24. Well, what does Jesus say in Luke 24? He says that the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures are about him. Two guys, they're walking along the road, headed home. Three days after the crucifixion, dejected because they thought Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus appears to them. And do you know what he says? He says, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then he took them on a tour of the Bible. He opened up to them beginning in Moses and then in all the prophets. By the way, when the Bible says Moses and all the prophets, that's shorthand for the whole Old Testament. The text says he opened to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He opened up to Leviticus. He opened up to Joshua. He opened up to Judges. He opened up to Chronicles. And he opened up to Ezra and Nehemiah. And while we don't know exactly what he said in that most incredible Bible study, we can imagine that when he came to Ezra and Nehemiah, it went something like this. Oh, yes, Jesus said. Ezra and Nehemiah are about me. Because, you see, the people of God need a better priest than Ezra. And the people of God need a better ruler and governor than Nehemiah. In fact, the people of God need a better temple. In fact, the people of God need a better city. In fact, the people of God need a better covenant. And I came to give them all of it. You see, friends, when we think about the temple, it's not a place. It's a person. Jesus is the temple. Do you think I'm taking interpretive liberty? I am not. Tear this temple down, Jesus said, looking at the temple. And in three days, I will Raise it up. John chapter 2. Jesus is the temple. 
He is the way in which God's people are really, truly able to fully and finally dwell with God and be with God. And what's more, we are the temple. Do you realize that? We are the temple. What does Ephesians 2 that we just got done studying tell us? That both Jews and Gentiles are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And together we dwell, we grow into what? A holy temple in the Lord. Jesus is the temple. We, his church, are the temple. And when we think about the walls of this city, Jerusalem, that's no physical place here. It's the new Jerusalem. Do you remember what John said in Revelation 21? Come with me and I will show you the bride of the Lamb. And what does he see? A city descending from on high. The bride is the church. The church is the new Jerusalem. The city of God is the church of God. We are the city of God. We are the temple. We are the city of God. And when we think about the covenant, the covenant that that was given on Mount Sinai, the covenant that was broken time and time again, the covenant that the Israelites reaffirmed in Ezra and in Nehemiah, friends, that covenant was not sufficient, was it? It wasn't. Which is why we have the words that we have in Hebrews 7 through 13. Just take the afternoon to read through Hebrews chapter 7 through chapter 13. And just see how wonderfully Jesus says that he has inaugurated a new covenant through his blood. A better covenant through his blood. He is both the priest and the offering. And through His intercession and offering of himself, he has entered into the Holy of Holies through his blood and he brings us with him. And the covenant that he sealed with his blood, it's better than the Mosaic covenant because it transforms our hearts such that we become obedient, which Israel never was. There's a new covenant. There's a new temple, there's a new city, there's a new covenant. And what's more, there is a new building campaign. Do you remember what Jesus said to us in Matthew 28:18? I know you do. It's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Friends, if you realize that we the church are the temple, we the church are the city, and you understand Jesus' words, then what you understand is just like God rebuilt Jerusalem in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, what that really means for us is that through Jesus, God is rebuilding a new Jerusalem, the church. The bride, the city whose walls will never be breached and never be conquered and the city who will never be overcome. We are a part of that and we are a part of building that, which is why Hebrews tells us, don't worry about whatever city you've come from. Here we have no lasting city. 
we seek the city to come. And so my question to you as we think about applying Ezra and Nehemiah, we will get into the thick of it as we move on. But I think the first question is just, are you in the city? Are you part of that temple? Are you within the walls of that precious city? Oh friend, the only way that you can be there is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and through repentance and faith in Him. You you cannot go there on your own. The only way you can gain entrance into this city, the only way you can knock at the gate and be be received is if you are united to the one who can bring you in through the merit of His own righteousness, which He gives you by faith. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian... Ezra and Nehemiah offers you eternal security, stability, peace, and safety. No matter what happens to us here, no matter what geopolitical machinations take place moving forward, All of these things are yours if you come into the city through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to come. Come into the city. Trust in Jesus Christ. And for brothers and sisters, for those of you who are in Christ, my question to you is, are you building? In Ezra and Nehemiah, do you realize how much work there was to do? Oh, there was so much work to do. And they worked. They worked feverishly. They had, a, they had construction materials on one hand and, and they, had, they had a sword for fighting in another. You almost think they'd read Ephesians chapter 6. Huh. There's all sorts of things that can capture our attention and our affection and our lives. Has the eternal city of God captured your affection such that you are laboring for that city's ultimate well-being? Are you living your life such that the church of Jesus Christ is built up? Both in terms of sinners coming into her and being saved and then... And then the saints being sanctified and built up as we together grow into a holy temple in the Lord. What captures your affections? Is it the eternal city? If it's not, may God be gracious to you and I through this book. And may we be sharpened. And may our hearts be focused and inclined. Not towards what is here and passing and distracting but towards that which is eternal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the precious truths of your word, and I pray that you would work through my stammering tongue to communicate some of the glories of them. Father, as we work through Ezra and Nehemiah, be pleased to build your church through Jesus Christ. Your church here at Redeeming Grace and your church universal.
And help us, Father, to have a mind for the work. Help us, Father, to have a construction materials in one hand and a sword in the other. And encourage us in the work. Protect us, Father, from enemies, both external and then most especially internal. And thank you, Father, for the confidence that we are part of the new covenant, a better covenant, one that is transformative through the blood of Jesus Christ, such that we are not like Israel of old. We will be faithful. Our inheritance does not ultimately rest on our faithfulness. It rests on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. But we will be faithful because we are in him who is faithful. So we thank you for these precious truths. We thank you for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray and rejoice and live and move and have our being. Amen.